Hey y'all, you're listening to the Faith Church Sermon Podcast. We are so excited that you're connecting with us today. It is our desire for you to grow as a result of the resources we provide here. We pray that this blesses you today as you seek to know Him more. Here's our question to start us off. What is the weirdest prayer you ever prayed? Let me tell you what mine was. It was a beautiful sunny Saturday morning. I decided that I was going to mow the lawn. We had an old temperamental craftsman riding mower. I don't think they even make them anymore. And I was in a good mood. I, I was ready to mow the grass, enjoy the beautiful weather, to enjoy the, freshly, the smell of the freshly cut grass. I got the mower out of the shed and tried to start it, and nothing happened. Nothing. I checked the battery, the gas, everything seemed to be okay. I tried to start it again, nothing. I spent the next 30 minutes trying to troubleshoot that old riding mower and with no success whatsoever. But then my mood was beginning to change. <laughs> That's when Rachel, who had been observing from inside of the house, came out and says, what's the problem? And I said, well, the mower won't start. And she said, uh, she asked a very simple question, have you prayed about it? And I thought to myself, who in their right mind prays for an old broken mighty mower? Well, apparently Rachel did. She was a woman of faith. She was a woman of prayer. And, uh, but I was not in the mood of prayer, so I said, okay, you pray. <laughs> and she prayed a very simple prayer. Lord, help the riding mower to start. In Jesus' name, amen. At that moment, I thought that was presumptuous, if not sacrilegious. <laughs> Nevertheless, I mustered an amen at the end of her prayer. You know, that's what you're supposed to do uh, as a Christian, right? Uh, say amen at the end of a prayer, uh, totally devoid of any faith whatsoever. I then walked over to the mower and the darn thing started right up without any hesitation whatsoever as if that dumb writing mower was waiting for divine intervention and divine intervention had come. And uh, it was as if, as if that mower was telling me, uh, now I'm ready to do my thing. I looked uh, at Rachel. She didn't say anything. She just walked right back into the house. The lesson had been learned. From that day on, I started to pray every time the mower wouldn't start. I actually prayed for every broken appliance in our home, <laughs> albeit with very little success. So if you need someone to pray over a broken appliance or a lawnmower, don't call me, call Rachel. Her track record is way, way better than mine. But seriously, have you ever felt like God is not listening to your prayers? Maybe you're desperately praying for something, but nothing is happening. Or maybe you try to pray, but all of a sudden you find yourself distracted. You start thinking about what you have to do, and then you think, was that prayer any good? I don't think God heard that prayer. Maybe I should start all over again. And then you get discouraged from praying. 
Or maybe you feel you're not praying right. Maybe I'm not using the right words when I pray. Maybe it's all about how you phrase things to God. If you have doubts and questions about your prayer life, you're really in very good company. Our passage today is Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. And in this passage, we see that the disciples of Jesus had some doubts of their own about their prayer life. And so they asked Jesus, teach us to pray. It's not as if they didn't know how to pray, but they had seen how Jesus prayed and it was different. And so they said, teach us to pray, Jesus, the way that you pray. And the way Jesus responded to their request not only transformed the way that they prayed, but also it can transform our prayer life, yours and mine. So let's pray and ask the Lord to guide us through this passage this morning. Father, we come to you asking you to guide us through this passage. Give us an understanding of what the disciples were talking about, their need to learn how to pray, and Father, teach us also how to pray like Jesus did. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let me just say that as we proceed through this passage, the message I'll be reading from both the NIV and the NLT translation. But in Luke chapter 11 and verse 1, we read that one day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John, John the Baptist, they referred to, taught his disciples. This was not the first time that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. In Matthew uh, chapters 5 through 7, we have recorded for us the longest sermon that Jesus ever preached It takes approximately 10 minutes to read it, but it's absolutely loaded with all kinds of spiritual truths to guide us in our prayer life as well as in other passages. But Jesus devoted a portion of that sermon to talk about the wrong and the right way of praying. Here's what we read in in Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 8. Jesus says this, And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing on the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by man. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into the room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think that they'll be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Now, Jesus says a couple things here about how not to pray and how to pray. First thing is that He says that prayer is not focusing attention on ourselves. Prayer is not focusing attention on ourselves. When we make ourselves the focus of attention, we tend to measure and to craft our words carefully because we want those who are listening to us to think that we are religious, that we are spiritual, that we know what we're talking about. And when we talk to God, that's not praying, that's spiritual hot air. Here in this passage, Jesus also says prayer is not repeating yourself over and over again. As if by praying long, repetitious prayers, you're going to convince or you're going to coerce God into giving you what you want. If, you know, if I bother God enough times, he's going to give me what I want. And Jesus says, don't pray like that. 
Jesus says here, prayer is getting alone with God in a place where you know no one is going to interrupt you and then pour out your heart to him. No one else is there to hear you pray, to know how or what you prayed for, or to analyze whether you used the right words or not. God knows what you're going to pray for so you don't have to beat around the bush. Jesus practiced what he preached over and over again, we read in the Gospels of Jesus retreating into the wilderness or some place alone, away from people, just to spend some time alone with God the Father. And when we come to our passage in Luke chapter 11, that's exactly what Jesus is doing. He had just finished spending some time alone with, uh, with the Father when he is approached by one of the disciples who asked him, teach us to pray like you pray. And Jesus says to them, wow, what a great idea. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to set some time aside and I'm going to put together a seminar, a five-day seminar, and then I'm going to call you all back together and we're going to talk about prayer. No. Here's what Jesus, here's what we read in Luke 11, verse 2. He says, he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. In 15 seconds, that's how long it takes to read the Lord's Prayer. Jesus is going to teach his disciples and us two important things about prayer. Who should we pray to and what we should pray for. And in the process of doing so, we will see that every line in this prayer reveals something about the nature and the character of God, which leads us to believe uh, very strongly that this is that prayer is not about us. It's about God. It's about connecting with the God whose character we're going to be talking about. So who should we pray to? Well, the first thing that Jesus says here is that we are to refer to God in our prayers as Father, Father. The word Father obviously speaks of the fatherhood of God over his children and points out to an important prerequisite for prayer. And that is that the person praying must have a personal relationship with God as their Heavenly Father. Now, from our previous studies uh, uh, on the Gospel of John chapter 1, we learned that Jesus enjoyed an eternal, an eternal relationship with God the Father. But for the rest of us, the Bible says that this intimate and personal relationship with God as our Heavenly Father is possible, but it is initiated at the moment that we place our faith and our trust in what Jesus did on the cross for us and receive Him into our lives. Here's what John chapter 14, verse 6, here's what Jesus said. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is no other way to get to God the Father except through God the Son, Jesus Christ. That is the only way to establish a personal relationship with God as our Father. In the same chapter, chapter 1 of John, verses 11 and 12, we read, He came to His own people, and even they rejected Him. But to all who believed Him and accepted Him, and that is you, if you have done so, he gave the right to become children of God. Children of God. In Paul's letter to the Ephesians, the apostle speaks 
of his, this intimate personal relationship with God as our Heavenly Father in terms of an adoption. Listen, this is a beautiful passage. Ephesians 1 verses 4 through 6 reads, Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us. And chose us, the New International Version uses the word predestined us. He chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do and it gave him great pleasure. Do you think, do you know what this passage is saying to you and to me? It's saying that our relationship with Jesus Christ, with the Heavenly Father through Jesus Christ, is not an accident. It's not as if God looked down at you one day and felt sorry for you or had pity on you. Or that he looked down at you and said to himself, wow, she has a lot of potential. So I'm going to save her and make her my daughter. No, your adoption into God's family was planned a long time ago. A long time ago, even before the world was made. Let that thought sort of sink into your heart this morning. You have been in God's mind way before he uttered the world's let there be light. I don't know what kind of earthly father you have or had. But God the Father is a caring, he's a loving, he's a compassionate, he's a consistent father. You matter to God. He cares about you, he loves you, he's interested in you. Now, what does that mean practically? It means that God cares about your health. He cares about your bills. He cares about your marriage. He cares about your kids. He cares about your problems. He cares about everything that affects your life. Why? Because you're his child. Because you're his child. And when his child comes to him in prayer, he listens. Prayer is the way that God the Father chooses to interact with his children in an intimate way. So when we pray, we should address him for what he is in our relationship to us, and that is our Heavenly Father. The second thing that Jesus says for us to do when we pray is that we are to pray using God's name with deep reverence. He says, hallowed be your name. The word hallowed in the Greek means to set apart, to treat it as holy. And the idea here is that God's name is to be set apart, to be separated from all of the other names. And God's name is to be treated with deep, deep reverence. But what does that mean to treat God's name as holy. You know, sometimes we say words, but we don't know exactly what they mean. It means that when I pray or make reference to God, I am to remember that his name is, uh, that, that his name is attached to his holy character. So when I say God is, uh, his name is holy, I'm saying that God himself and his character is holy. And to disrespect and to dishonor God's holy name is to disrespect his holy character. John Piper put it this way. I like the way he said, he says, the one specific response of the human heart that God requires of all human beings in this prayer is that we reverence, that we honor, that we esteem, that we admire, that we value, that we treasure God's name above all things. Now, here are some ways that we dishonor and disrespect God's name. We do that 
when we use God's name as a crude expression. This is when someone uses God's name with profanity to express anger or frustration. When a person does that, they are disrespecting God's name. They are offending the creator, the sovereign ruler of the universe. One other way, another way that we disrespect and dishonor God's name is when we use God's name in a, in a way to impress people. You know, it's totally okay for us to, as believers to be able to say, praise the Lord, hallelujah, uh, thank you, Jesus, etc., as long as it comes from the heart and not as an attempt to sound spiritual or to make other people think and to impress other people, those who are around us. Another way that we dishonor and disrespect God's name is using God's name flippantly. Oh my God, it's snowing again. Oh my God, I just found out that Janie's pregnant again. Dear Lord, did you see the way that she was dressed in church today? And this is one that gets me, OMG, the Chiefs won the Super Bowl again. Really? Have we totally now reduced God to an abbreviation? God's name is so tied to his holy character that he made it a part of the Ten Commandments. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, we read, You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Wow. When we pray, God wants us to come with, to him with deep reverence for his name. We come to him as our father, whose very name projects the holiness of his character. The third thing that Jesus says for us to do when we pray is that we should pray with God's kingdom in view. Your kingdom come, he said. Luke 17, verses 20 and 21, Jesus was talking to the Pharisees who are interested in the kingdom of God, and he says, the kingdom of God can't be detected by visible signs. You won't be able to say, here it is, or over there, for the kingdom of God is already among you. This is what Jesus said. When he said these words, the kingdom of God had already been, been, was already being established and it was comprised of his presence on earth and the people who were already embracing his message and his teaching. The book of Acts tells us that the disciples of Jesus, when Jesus ascended into glory, it says that the disciples of Jesus went about preaching the gospel of the kingdom. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as people responded to the preaching, the invisible spiritual kingdom of God kept growing. And it is even to this day. Why does Jesus say that we need to pray with God this uh, the, the view, the kingdom view in mind. I believe it is because when we pray, we tend to focus our prayer on what we want God to do for us. So much so that we lose sight of the big picture, the master plan of God, and that is that God is establishing a kingdom right here on earth, one person at a time. Sometimes we just forget that we are children of God's kingdom. What difference does the kingdom view makes in my prayer life? Colossians chapter 1, verses 11 through 14, the Apostle Paul talks about that. 
Here's what he says. May you be filled with joy, always thanking the Father. He has enabled you to share in the inheritance that belongs to his people, to live in the light. For he has rescued you, rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his dear son who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. Do you know what Paul is saying here? He's saying that God the Father is building his kingdom right in the middle of Satan's territory rescuing one person at a time from the kingdom of darkness and placing them into the the, the kingdom of his son, Jesus Christ, which is God's kingdom. So why does Jesus want me to focus, first of all, on who I'm praying to? Well, certainly because when I pray to my heavenly father, I come to him and I feel loved. I feel cared for. I feel that God really is interested in what I'm saying. Because when I honor and respect his holy name, it reminds me that my heavenly father happens to be the almighty God, the creator, the sovereign ruler of the universe, redeemer, sustainer. He is the holy God. Because when I pray with God's kingdom in view, I come to prayer with joy and with thanksgiving, celebrating my freedom and forgiveness in Christ. And my participation into his kingdom. I am part of God's kingdom. Having laid out who we should pray to. Jesus now focuses on what we should pray for. So we pause. We reflect on who we are praying to. And now Jesus is going to tell us what we should be praying for. And he says, first of all, pray for your daily needs. Pray for your daily needs. Give us this day our daily bread. This reminds us that God is my provider. Daily bread is representative of our needs, and I think that we would agree that each day presents us with a new set of needs on top of the old ones. And we have all kinds of needs, physical needs, mental needs, emotional needs, spiritual needs. Do you know what happens when we go to prayer and we forget that Father God is our provider? That he cares about our needs and struggles and is strong enough to help us? We worry. We worry. Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, the Apostle Paul says, Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank Him for all He has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and your minds as you live in Christ Jesus. Isn't that amazing? We can go to him. We don't have to worry. We have to come to him and pray about everything. And the Bible says, as I thank him for what he has already done for me, the peace of God just overwhelms my heart and my mind, and I'm able to then relax in him. I don't know about what your needs are today, but I know this one thing from what Jesus says here. God, our Holy Father, is our provider. He doesn't want us to go around worrying. Instead, he wants us to come to him in prayer and ask him to provide for what he needs. He cares about us. Another thing that we are to pray for, Jesus says here, we are to pray for forgiveness. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive 
everyone who sins against us. Notice that being able to forgive others is a prerequisite for obtaining forgiveness from God. How hypocritical will it be of me to want to be forgiven by God and yet not to extend forgiveness to someone who wants my forgiveness? This raises a question. If I was forgiven for all of my sins when I put my faith and trust in Jesus, then why do I need to pray for forgiveness anyway? It boils down to the difference between two different words, the word relationship and the word fellowship. Relationship with God the Father was sealed permanently. At the moment that I received Jesus into my life, At that moment, I became a child of God, adopted into his family. I will never, that will never, ever change. It's permanently sealed. However, my fellowship, that is my day-to-day walk with Jesus and God the Father, is regulated by how I live my life. And my fellowship with the Father can be disrupted by the sins that I commit on a daily basis that offend him. That's why I need to ask God to forgive me on my daily sins. It's not to save me, to keep my salvation intact. It's to keep my fellowship with the Father alive and flourishing and growing. Lastly, Jesus says, not only pray for your needs and for forgiveness, but pray for deliverance and guidance. Pray for deliverance and guidance. He says, lead us not into temptation Now, as soon as you read that, two questions come to mind. Does God tempt people? And the answer is no. The book of James explains that very clearly in the first chapter. Does God sometimes lead people into situations that that he knows is going to test their faith? And the answer is absolutely yes. In Matthew chapter 4, the Bible says that Jesus was led into the wilderness by the Spirit to be tempted, to be tested by the devil. God the Father knew that in the wilderness, the devil had already prepared three different ways to tempt Jesus. And the Holy Spirit led him right in the middle of that particular time of testing. Did God tempt Jesus? No. Did God lead Jesus to be in a situation where he knew Jesus would be tested? And the answer is yes. So what does that mean to you and to me? It means that in life we face all kinds of situations that are beyond our understanding and control. These are the trials of life. The things that test our faith. These are situations that bring with them many opportunities for temptations. Situations that God knows are going to test our faith to the limit sometimes. And Jesus says here, pray that the Father will deliver you from those situations. If this, is, if this is so good for my faith, then shouldn't I pray that God will lead me into more times of trials? And Jesus says, no, pray that God will deliver you from those times of trials. You know, that means that regardless of how spiritually strong you feel you are, you don't go around looking for situations you could, that could potentially lead you into a situation where you'll be tempted If you know that there's some weakness in your life, you don't put yourself in a situation where your weakness is going to be exploited by the the evil one. Maybe right now you're in the middle of one of uh, of these situations, a situation that is testing you to the limit and it seems so unbearable to you. 
right now. Listen, God's word says pray for God's guidance in the midst of it. Sometimes God delivers us from it. Sometimes God takes us through it and guides us through it safely. Pray that God will lead you safely through this trial that you're facing. Let me give you a promise from Scripture to hang on to. It's found in 1 Corinthians, Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13. No trial or testing has seized you except what is coming to man, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, when you are tested, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to stand under it. Did you get that? God is faithful. He will never allow you to be tested above that you're able. He will also provide a way out for you. God, our Heavenly Father, knows how difficult the trials of life can be and how the devil can use our trials to discourage us and to try to, uh, to, to undo what God has been doing in our lives. And he says here, I will never leave you without a way out. I'll let the trials of life test your faith, but I will not let it, let it destroy you. That is his promise to us. So the initial request from the apostles, from disciples, was teach us to pray like you pray, Jesus. And Jesus' response to them was, first pause and reflect in whose presence you are. Pause and reflect in whose presence you are. See, so many times we come to, to prayer anxious, afraid, overwhelmed, confused, and we jump right into telling God what we want him to do for us. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I even find myself telling God how he should answer my prayer request. As if he needs my instruction. And when I do that, I leave my prayer time still feeling anxious, afraid, overwhelmed, and confused. Why? Because I never stopped to first reflect on whose presence I was. When you're in the presence, in God's presence, you experience peace. You experience peace. It calms your fear. It reduces your anxiety and feeling of being overwhelmed. And it settles your mind. In other words, it puts you into the right frame of mind to talk to God, your Heavenly Father, about what you need from Him. And once you're in the right frame of mind, you can lean on Him as your provider. You can bring to Him all of your cares, all your needs, you can confess to him anything that blocks your fellowship with him. You can count on him for protection and guidance through every trial of life. Now this morning we're going to end with prayer. But I want us to practice the Lord's Prayer, what we have learned from God's Word this morning. So please bow your head and close your eyes. And what I want you to do is to reflect in whose presence you are right now. And say the word, Father. He's the one that loves you, the one that cares about you. Reflect upon his name. 
for he is the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things. He's your redeemer. His name is holy because he is holy. Thank him for making a part of his kingdom. You are a child of God who belongs in his kingdom. He put you there. He plucked you right out of the kingdom of darkness and placed you in the kingdom of his dear son. Now tell God what you want from him. Don't beat around the bush. Just tell him. Ask for forgiveness for anything that is standing between you and him. Thank him for all he has done in your life. Thank him for his goodness and mercy and grace. And whatever you're facing this morning, whatever trial you're facing, ask God to guide you through it safely. Thank you, Father, for teaching us to pray, how to pray like Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.